grace. Grace is one of those biblical words that we say all the time in the church. It's a word much like love that is often used. That person was very gracious or I received his grace. Charis is the Greek word for grace and it can mean kindness or unmerited favor. And it's most often used in scripture in relation to God reaching down to us with his favor. Most of us understand understand grace in terms of giving someone something they don't deserve. So it's as if Miss Aaron's speeding ticket this morning, not that it was her speeding ticket, but if it was her speeding ticket, as if the cop who would have given her that ticket decided that, you know what, I'm not going to give that to you today, even though you deserve it because you broke the law. That is grace. The Apostle Paul, he speaks of grace as a gift of God, particularly towards our salvation in Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he tells us, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast You see, grace is a gift that we all want from God because we all know the depths of our own sin better than anyone else. And yet at the same time, grace is also something we can struggle to give to those who have wronged us. But the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they never record Jesus one time using the word grace. Go and read it. Jesus never uses that word at all. We get it in the letters of Paul or in the epistle readings. We hear about grace all the time, but never directly from Jesus himself. In fact, the word grace is only used twice in the Gospels and both in reference to Jesus. You know one of them in the Gospel of John that says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Even though Jesus never used this term, We know that Jesus believed in this and embodied this in his life and in his ministry. And the ways in which Jesus spoke about grace was more of an inductive approach by using what we know is called stories that were parables. Parables, heavenly stories. Jesus used common things with what we would understand so that the people around him could understand things that were here, but he spoke of heavenly things in that way so they could grasp what the kingdom of heaven was truly like. And so today, we're going to learn about grace alone through the eyes of Jesus' story of the prodigal son, but maybe it's best understood as the prodigal sons. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now, I don't know about you, but there's no such thing as two children being the same, not to mention the difference between being the older and the younger sibling. You see, the general rule of thumb is that the older child is the rule follower and that the younger child feels that the rules were made to be broken. You understand? Yes. (laughs) I've experienced that in your own families. As a father of two sons, I've experienced that as well. Every child is different. Every child is unique. They have their own personality that makes them special. But we also know that siblings tend to quarrel with one another. And sometimes that can last beyond childhood. Now, we know as parents that parents love their children. And at the same time, they want them to also love one another. 
This is what God desires for all of us, not just in our immediate families, but also as an extended family of faith in God's kingdom family. Therefore, Jesus shares a parable about a father who has two very different sons. And so the parable begins with the younger son asking his father for his share of the inheritance. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament and read Deuteronomy 21.17, you will find out that the oldest son was the one who had the birthright. And the one who had the birthright would receive two-thirds of the estate, which meant that the younger son would only get a third. But the request that the son makes to his father is a disgrace to the father to begin with. It's as if he tells his dad, I wish you were dead so that I can have what is rightfully mine. Now his father had every right to deny his request and to rebuke him for his lack of respect. In fact, even in that culture, he could have just backhanded his son and told him, hey, that's not going to happen. But he doesn't. Instead, this father does the absolute opposite. He gives him what he asks for. In Jewish culture, this would never happen because it would put the father at risk of becoming dependent upon someone else to care for him. Surely the father knows that his son is up to no good. So why would he enable such behavior? The sheer notion that he would do such a thing would have angered Jesus' hearers from the start. But Jesus continues, going on to share that the younger son then sold his property for cash and he set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. The Greek word here is a sotos, and this means that he was careless with his money. And this word's only used three times in the entirety of the New Testament, and it's always in reference to drunkenness, rebelliousness, and debauchery. Rather than investing his money wisely, this son spent all of this money on whatever was pleasing to him in the moment. And in doing so, he reaped the fruits of his own foolishness, finding himself broke during a time of severe famine in the land. And he became so destitute and so poor that he had to hire himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him out to feed his pigs in his field. But once again, Jesus is pushing his hearers. Because here's the thing, Jews don't feed pigs because pigs are considered unclean. This man chose to work for a Gentile in a Gentile area. He was breaking the rules to begin with and then feeding unclean pigs. And so the Mishnah, which is the oral Torah, the instructions of God's law, it forbids raising pigs. So not only was his son disgraceful to his father, he was disgraceful to the Lord. But he was so helpless that he longed to eat the pods that the pigs were eating. And so this lavish lifestyle that he had came to an abrupt ending and he finally hit rock bottom. And in doing so, this son had to make a decision that he was either going to starve to death or he was going to have to return home. And I have to tell you, returning home would not be easy for him. Admitting your stupidity and acknowledging your foolishness to waste away everything that your father has worked so hard for would not be received with open arms. In fact, he should expect his father to say, I told you so, you should have never done this, you should have listened to me, and I don't want you back at home. 
So when he came to his senses, he devised a plan to go home and to confess his sin and to ask his father to hire him as a servant. He thought to himself, I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But here's the thing. In doing so, he severs the family ties. He's no longer entitled as a son to his father's estate. And the father is no longer required to treat him like a son. To have a personal relationship with him if he becomes one of his slaves. As humiliating as this would be, it was better than dying in a foreign land. So he gets up and he goes back home. Jesus continues, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It was culturally unbecoming for a grown man to run, much less to run towards a wayward son who had disgraced his own name. It was also customary for the son to address the father first, offering respect But his father doesn't wait for him to speak before he embraces him and kisses him. And as the son begins his rehearsed speech that I'm sure he has practiced all along this journey back home, he's unable to get it all out before his father interrupts him, ordering his servants to dress him in the finest robe, to place his signet ring on his finger, to put sandals on his feet, and to make preparations for a party where they will kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a steak dinner. The anxiety of wondering what his son is doing The sleepless nights that he's endured, all the grief and sorrow that he's felt has turned into great joy and celebration and he refuses to celebrate alone. He is going to have a party and everyone is going to be there. He says, let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. But Jesus shared that there was two sons, didn't he? The oldest has been left out of the story just until now. Working out in the fields, he begins to hear music and dancing. And he asks one of his servants, what's what's going on? And the servant informs him that his brother has come home and that his father has killed the fattened calf for him because he's home safe. Now this is a big deal. Because meat was not a part of their regular diet during that time. And the fattened calf was very valuable. And preparing a meal like this was only reserved for special occasions and special festivals. So as you can imagine, the older brother is upset. His blood boils in anger and he refuses to go in and enjoy the celebration and welcome his brother back home. So his father looks around in the midst of the party and he doesn't see his oldest son. So he goes out and he pleads with him to come in, but the brother will have none of it. He tells his father, he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
In this moment, the rule follower disrespects his father by not addressing him as father, but then also by rebuking him for the way that he has acted. He vomits his feelings upon him, acknowledging that he's been a slave all this time. He's never been rewarded for being obedient, much less for being a failure and bringing disgrace to the family name. And so he sees his actions towards his younger brother as unjust, unwarranted, undeserved, and completely unfair. But you know what? I don't think he has a problem with his brother coming home. I think the real problem is his father's reaction. To him, you see, it's completely backwards. His brother should be treated as his sins deserve. He shouldn't have a party. He should be treated like a slave. He should receive bread and water instead of a steak dinner. He should be wearing sackcloth instead of a fine robe. He should be sitting in ashes instead of wearing his father's signet ring. And he should be shedding tears instead of dancing with joy. His father has rewarded poor behavior. And if anyone deserves a party, it's him. Yet his father extends the same grace to him as his brother, saying to him, My son, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father's response is clear. You, son, are always with me. All that I have is yours. His son's obedience isn't about being a slave. It's about being with him, serving with his father and enjoying all that the father has. And the oldest son has missed this for years, it seems. Bitterness has alienated him from his father, whom he's seen as a a taskmaster and a slave driver rather than gracious and loving. Jesus abruptly ends the parable right there. But why? Why doesn't he tell us what the brother does? Why doesn't he give us the end of the story? He leaves us hanging in suspense. Because, well, prior to the parable, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law. They are angry that Jesus has welcomed the sinners and the tax collectors and even eating with them. And this parable follows two other parables in a series of them. You may know them as the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And each of those parables deals with someone who has lost something, a shepherd who has lost one of his sheep and who goes out and leaves 99 to find the one. And then when he brings the one back, he rejoices and throws a party and invites everyone to rejoice with him. And then there's a woman who loses one of her ten coins. And when she finds that coin, she rejoices and she invites others to come over and to have a party and celebrate this one coin that was lost has been found. Jesus goes from the lesser to sheep and to coins to the greater to real life. And he does it intentionally to shock his audience. The irony is that both sons are prodigals. Both of them. The younger resents the rules of the house thinking that wealth and wild living is what life is all about. 
And the elder is home with dad, but remains distant in his relationship with him, begrudgingly following the rules rather than recognizing his own privilege and presence with such a loving father. And he resents his father's grace towards his younger brother. But the only constant in this story is the father himself. And he patiently waits on both of them to come home. And he loves both of them, and he doesn't show favoritism to either one of them. And he's unafraid to shamefully do things that are contrary to the norm because his love for his children is far more important to him than what others might perceive of him. His love is not conditional. Otherwise, the younger son wouldn't have been welcomed back home, much less treated like royalty. See, bitterness and anger have no place in his household, for his house is ruled with extravagant grace and love, and his love is offered to the wayward son, running to meet him as he is, and to the obedient son as he seeks him out to welcome him to the party. This father desires that all the lost be found, and for all those who are dead to come back to life. See, this parable is more than just a story. It's real life. And it's not just shared for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus shares it with all of us. You know, I used to think that I was the only person who had a dysfunctional family until I read the Bible. I read the Gospel of Matthew and I read Jesus' family tree. Wow, what a mess. Jacob cheated his own brother out of his birthright for a bowl of soup. And his mom was in cahoots with him in doing it. And you read on. And there's guys like Judah who had incest with his daughter-in-law. And then you read on and there's Rahab who was a prostitute who comes into the family of Jesus. And there's Ruth the Moabite who was a foreigner who comes in. Like there's all kinds of craziness going on in this family tree, but somehow the Messiah comes from this line and even from the line of David who was an adulterer and a murderer. What a mess. Families are great, but they're messy. Man, they're messy. Relationships can be complicated. Feelings can get really hurt and forgiveness sometimes can just be withheld. Our past can define us. And sometimes our parents are not so gracious in dealing with our waywardness. You see, this parable, it pulls at our heartstrings because we've all lived it in some way. And whether we've been the prodigal child, the bitter sibling, or the patient parent, we find ourselves in this story. And sometimes roles get reversed. For instance, when a child becomes the parent, or the brother becomes the bitter father or mother. But regardless, Jesus draws us into this story for the very same reason he first shared it. The lost may be found, and that the dead may come back to life. You see, the story is not so much about the children. It's more about the grace of the father. And Jesus wants us to know that grace itself is a gift. It's not earned, and it's granted both to the obvious sinner and to the self-righteous who are blinded to their need for it. 
Grace alone reminds us that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us any more than he already does. Whether we run away from God like the younger son, or even if we are obedient for the wrong reasons like the older son. A little while in the service, we sang a hymn that many of us know very well. Amazing Grace. That hymn was written in 1772 by a man named John Newton. Now, John Newton wrote this hymn a long time ago, but this was a special thing for him because he experienced God's grace in a special way. You see, John Newton was a slave trader, and he was carrying slaves on a boat and selling them. And while he was doing this, on one particular day, a storm came. A really bad storm came upon his boat. And he prayed to God to save them from the storm, him and his crew. And God spared them. And in doing so, he converted, truly converted, and allowed God to transform his life. And in doing so, Newton sought out the abolition of slavery in England. Near the end of his life, he struggled with his memory. But he is quoted as remembering at least two things. He says that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And I find that when we sing the words of this hymn, they still ring true to us today. Much like the parable that Jesus teaches us. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, Jesus grants grace to the wretch, the younger son, and even to the blind, the older son. It's undeserved favor. It's God reaching down to us and holding us in the grip of His grace. You see, grace alone, God's amazing grace, should not only give us a peace that surpasses all understanding, but it should also lead us to be gracious towards one another. Jesus doesn't give us the ending to that parable, and I think He does that intentionally. I think He intentionally lets it sit So that you and I can enter into that story and determine whether or not we are going to come to the party and celebrate or whether we're going to sit outside and be angry. That choice is up to us. For those who have acknowledged and received the gift of grace, the amazing grace in Jesus Christ that saves a wretch like us, blind people like us and rather than just receiving it and hoarding it to ourselves Jesus calls us to follow in his way just as he ate with those sinners and tax collectors and to extend God's grace even to those who don't deserve it because at the end of the day none of us do so friends Let us not only receive this gift, but may we also extend this grace as we seek to follow Jesus together. May it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.